Welcome, Welcome to, to the, the Time, Time Bandits, Bandits Minute. Minute. Time Bandits Minute is a podcast in which Duncan Shields and Curtis Blaze analyze and scrutinize the 1981 Terry Gilliam movie, Time Bandits. One minute at a time. And we are being joined by our guests from the Mad Max Minute. I am Rick. And I am Julia. Welcome! We are on episode 12, is that right? Episode 12? That's right, we are on episode 12. We begin with the Supreme Being continuing to menace them, and we end with the beginning of a roll call for, like, uh, the entirety of the band, the merry band of misfits that have managed to whisk Kevin off on the adventure of a lifetime. Minute 13 is where we'll finally get to get that introduction of the bandits. which is awesome. Yeah, little, little insights into each of their personalities and stuff as they say present or here or accounted for or whatever. So we've got the Supreme Being's head floating down saying, Return what you have stolen from me. Return. Return the map. It will bring you great danger. Stop now. Maybe you can add a bunch of reverb and flange and deepen my voice or something there, but it's very, uh, it's it's very uh, ominous and scary what he's doing, and it's also very similar to uh, uh, the wizard in like the Wizard of Oz. That whole "How dare you speak to me in the jets of flame" and the big weird face, and it's a very uh, similar kind of kind of thing. Real, real, um, a real exercise of power, a real, a real display of power here. <laughs> It will bring you great danger. Stop now. It's one of those lines that I use to quote to people when I want them to stop doing something. Yeah. <laughs> Return. Return what you have stolen. <laughs> and everybody just looks at me weird because nobody in my life has seen this movie except for you guys. Yeah. <laughs> this, uh, yeah, this movie seems to be a real beloved gem by a lot of people but also like uh what's that by a whole lot of other people so it's uh it's interesting when i told people i was going to start doing this they were you know it was kind of like it was a real sort of 70 30 30 percent were like time bandits oh my god i love that movie and then other people were like what's that so is that the one where they go back in time to the medieval times and it was written by that guy that wrote the andromeda strain <laughs> time bandits i love michael crichton it's like, oh, yeah, buddy. Exactly. <laughs> so, <laughs> no. No, that's not. No. Not. And I'd be like, yes, exactly. <laughs> that movie. Yeah. Okay, I just want to say, I got to give credit to Time Bandits because I'm always a fan of a movie that does what the title promises. This movie mm-hmm. is called Time Bandits, and in this movie, there are bandits who travel through time, so I am instantly satisfied. Yeah. <laughs> there were no other hurdles that this movie had to jump for me. Are there bandits? Nope. Yes. Are they traveling through time? Yes. Completely satisfied. Done. Thank you very much. <laughs> Let's get to the end of this thing. Yeah. That's awesome. I have very low standards when it comes to movies. <laughs> Well, it's what you want, right? It's what you want. That's what the title is. Snakes on a plane and all that. You right. Know, like it's exactly. Kinda... Um, Curtis, as you're bringing up the subject of time travel, um, does one have to transform into a puppet slash ragdoll in order to travel <laughs> through time, as this movie would suggest? <laughs> oh, my God. How dare you, sir? How dare you? The, the height of effects. Yeah. I do yeah, not okay. know what you're talking about, and we are moving on. <laughs> get... So, yeah, we get uh, the wall pops out into infinite black space, and uh, now the hallway is leading to the void. And since it happened in mid-push, everybody kind of loses their balance and falls into it. Yeah. Okay, this is just for Duncan. You're 10 years old, and you see this. Are mm-hmm. you freaked out? Are you like, what is going on here? Well, I kind of I kind of reacted like Kevin. Like, I'm not... I don't know anybody who's like a huge fan of falling. So I was kind of like, uh, what, what is going on now? Like, this is a real one, two, three of like the, the wall moves, which is like, uh, okay, we're in new territory here. And then the head appears and then they're falling through space out of this. I just love the, uh, the imagery of that square of light. You know, it's just a square of light. Yeah. Beaming light out into like the void with scraps of paper, you know, and dust. And then they're like, whoa, and then they uh, they fall. And there's this 
big symbol crash and then yeah we get to see uh kevin and all the bandits very realistically fall into the darkness uh, and they, they, they they put their cast in great jeopardy to get this shot because it is obviously them falling through space you know and, i uh, heard that they were actually hanging them off the edge of the hallway and they had a device that was going to automatically let them go and terry gilliam was counting and he said he was going to have the thing let go on the count of three. But he said one, two, and then just let it go. So he could capture the actual surprise on their face. <laughs> yeah. Oh, hey, there's a moment like that in the Mad Max movies, right? He's going to pull the arrow out through the leg. And he's like, we're going to go on three. One, yank. And he does that. Uh, is that? I think that's in one of them. I might be wrong. No, no, it was it was earlier than yeah, that. Yeah, it was an earlier movie. I, yeah, yeah. I know what you're talking either, about, but I am blanking on where it's from. Well, it's the, either Thunderdome or Road Warrior. I'm not sure. The movie that this I thought goes, of. Um, mm-hmm. No, see, so Duncan's talking about when Max pulled open the door and yanked the harpoon out of Pig Killer's leg. That's right. Yeah. Yes. That's right. Yeah. But seeing everybody fall out the door made me think of the opening scene to Fury Road where Max is running oh, through yeah. door after door after door. And then he gets to the end and he's able to stop himself before he yeets himself out into open air. Yes. <laughs> yeah. But that one guy, witness me. That's not, not, not so lucky. <laughs> Oh, somebody needs to do an edit of that now. Instead of, ah, ah, and then Kevin's last little pathetic, ah, going by, he's just yelling, witness me, witness. That'd be good. Or just put in the goofy yell. (laughs) Yeah. We're looking at it now. Yeah, it's it's true. These are clearly dolls being dropped, and uh, none of them are real. But I remember um, when I saw this the first time, I didn't click at all. I think my dad my dad laughed at the fakeness of it. But I was like, "Why? Why are you laughing?" There, you know, yeah, Dad, you monster! How could you laugh at this? <laughs> How dare you? They're in danger, Father. <laughs> Have you no heart? No soul? Well, and falling into blackness is something particularly that scares me. Mm, sure. I feel like it would be less scary to jump out of an airplane in the daytime than it would be mm. to fall through darkness at night. Even if you knew there was something like water below. That thing where you can't see when you're going to hit, that sure. really freaks me out. And as a 10-year-old, this really did just scare me uh, that he was falling into darkness. And the fact that he seemed to jump on purpose... Was like, ah, would I be that brave? Well, am I so afraid yeah. of the giant fiery head? Can you, uh, yeah, like it's almost, could you will yourself to do that even in that situation? I don't know if I could. And what happens if the head reaches you? That's a, that's, that's a really good that's question. That's question. Like, yeah. on the one hand, the, on the one hand, the floating head is just a head. Like, what is it going to mm-hmm. do? Like, bite you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> I mean, all it is is a head. It has one tool. It's mouth. So, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's not like there's a giant foot coming down on you. <laughs> That's later in the movie. I think this head is another case of what we saw on Monday where the bandits pile on the bed to attack Kevin, but they don't actually do anything. They're just kind of, I don't know, jumping around. Yeah. On top of him, but they're not actually mm-hmm. doing anything. They're more about the threat. I wholly agree with you, Julia. This movie is a head case. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I don't think anything would happen if the head caught up to him. Yeah, <laughs> It would be really awkward, because Kevin would be standing there at the precipice, and the head would be like, so, uh, you gonna, you gonna jump now? <laughs> I kind of had this whole thing planned. <laughs> I think the head is only a projection of light. I don't think this head can do yeah. anything. I think it would pass oh. through him and nothing. I think it's a projection. Yeah. An illusion, yeah. yeah. Then then you've just got Terry Gilliam standing next to a rolling cart with a projector on it. Yeah. <laughs> like, um, go. He's the man behind the uh, curtain. Oh, oh, hi. Uh, Pay no attention to the man behind the yeah. curtain. I... <laughs> <laughs> I would like to see an awkward pause where the, the head catches up and Kevin's still standing there and the head just like 
chins him off the edge. <laughs> go. Go. One thing about the fakeness of the bodies falling um, is this This is a note that did come up for, uh, for Fury Road because I'm an animator and they were talking about the scenes in the storm when everybody gets sucked up in their cars and there's bodies flailing around and, and flopping around and stuff like that, is that the animators had to look up like reference material to get the, the, the realistic motions. So they looked up like tornadoes that had hit, you know, I don't know, trailer parks or, or stuff like that where people were getting sucked up into these windstorms. And Ouch. under those conditions, the bodies that are flying around, uh, even on like the documentary footage, they look fake as hell. They look like they're just they're just rigid. They look like mannequins. They don't they they're not giving off human body vibes, even though it's literally footage of human bodies being tossed around by the wind. So they had to like add like pinwheeling legs and pinwheeling arms and yeah. stuff like that to sort of get a get a cinematic feel of a body flopping around that actually wouldn't be like that in real life. And I thought that was kind of kind of fascinating that the scene of the of the dolls falling might actually accidentally look more realistic than uh, than having them kicking and flailing around. I don't know. You know, that really feels real to me. Did any of you ever do any crazy X game style ramping on your bikes or anything when you were little, jumping over cars and no. trash cans and stuff? No. Okay, so we did, because our parents weren't there for nine hours in a row, <laughs> and we would wreck tremendously, just all the time. Terrible wrecks, just cartwheeling through the air just flailing around and you would just flop like a doll mm, there was no yeah. cinematic uh well like my friend josh you know you would see him become separated in the middle of the air from his bike and his body would just go flipping end over end and there was no trying to be an action adventure star he wasn't tucking himself into a ball to roll out of it he would just flop onto the ground however he would land and just break whatever it would break and he really did just look like a doll, and I'm sure that when I did it, I also just looked like a doll flopping through the air. Mm -hmm. There was no being conscious as it was happening to you, awareness of where up and down was, and trying to brace yourself. So just to yes and your point there about dolls possibly looking more realistic, like what we would expect because they would be consciously moving around. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I also like that this this kind of is what I imagine a bottomless pit would be in Dungeons and Dragons. This, uh, this nice, sequence here. nice. But in the yeah, in uh, do we talk about the books or the yeah? That's okay. Yeah, we can talk about that when we get there. But yeah, it's like you were saying before. We hear all their screams. Doppler passed. Kevin last. Ah, <laughs> that's great that he's <laughs> that he's last. Which was just the perfect comedic beat right yeah. there to take the edge off this big fall. Yeah. Uh, then we get lights up on a on a rundown ramshackle pastoral small farmhouse with some uh, some geese out front, some planks of wood and piles of bricks in a barrel. Extremely unkempt, very much falling apart. Um, I did notice uh, I did some ge goose research, and these uh, geese <laughs> they look like in the back there's Emden geese, and then in the front there might be a buff grayback goose up front there with the gray wings in the back. There's a rooster there and. You get that sound of an artillery shell whistling closer and descending in pitch as the camera zooms in on the geese. And I guess that's the sound of them arriving. And we get to see that perfectly rectangular black hole with a white glowing edge open up in the fabric of reality in the sky. And the Kevins, uh, the bandits and Kevin all drop out screaming while wind is still howling out of the portal, according to the, the sound effects. That blue edge to the time door is an extremely comforting 80s look to me all of the realistic animation that needed to glow looked exactly like this in the 80s it's true whether it was the ghostbusters gun or the lightning from duncan mcleod cutting off somebody's head mm -hmm. the program yeah. from tron mm -hmm. right all that kind of glow right that was a unique glow that was going around yeah i thought of uh, bill and ted's excellent adventure yeah yeah yep yep, yep. The lightning coming off the antenna on the top of the phone booth. Yep. Because it's, uh, as far as I know, it's it's practical. Like you actually cut a hole in the film and shine a light through it and then photograph that. So the glow is like literal light shining through the film. Like in the beginning of uh, the John Carpenter movie, The Thing, when um, like the title comes up and the light's shining through it, that was just a garbage bag with those letters taped up against uh, um, 
an aquarium that he was shining a light through. And so, and then he set them all on fire. So like <laughs> the, the plastic burns and as the plastic burns, the light through the aquarium comes through and he just filmed that happening. And I'm like, that's so low tech, right? But so effective. I love and, the creativity of every, of things before digital came along Yeah, and made it all easier, different. Yeah. <laughs> the movies of this time period were at their peak of being able to do practical and special effects that were not in a computer. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of knowledge about those effects that's just lost now. Just gone, yeah. Like an aspect of that, that that does live on is in sound effects. Mm-hmm. Those, a lot of sound effects are still done manually and still has yeah. that creative element of, hey, take three things that have nothing to do with each other and you mix them together and you end up with running water. And it's still yeah. done that way. Yeah. And it's so effective. It's like, it's, it's wild when you see how they make that sound. Yes. You know, like one was like, I remember I saw one on, I think it was the old Letterman show. There was a, a woman on there who was doing sound for movies and she had, this is how we do breaking bones. And she held a piece of celery up to the mic and gave it a, gave it a twist. And you were like, Oh my God. <laughs> You're just like, that's, that's, Oh, that's like, Oh my God. That's so accurate. But yeah, it's even weirder when they've got like, I don't know, a paper bag and a sponge. And it's like, sounds exactly like a, a goose taking flight or something like that. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. How does that work? You know, but it's right there. Also stuff in Soundland has been lost. Like they, they don't know where the Jetsons car sound effect comes from. They still have no idea. Right. There are, yeah. Whoever there did are it certain was sounds like, that only live on digital copies and how and where it came from is completely yeah. lost. I find that fascinating. Nobody wrote it. The person who, cre- yeah, the person who created it yeah. didn't write it down, didn't, but it's still yeah, used didn't write a down lot the today. recipe. Yeah. Going in a slightly different direction here, just going forward a little, he zooms in on the geese as the sound of artillery whistling is converging on this spot. Mm-hmm. And then when the bandits fall, they fall right into the area where the geese and the chickens mm-hmm. are. And then as they recover from their fall and go everywhere, those things are gone. The geese? Yeah. Yeah, they got the heck well, out of Dodge. They have fled. Geese, yeah, they flee. Did they? Or did they land on them? I believe oh, they I flew. I... They fled. Okay, I'm willing to think that they were squished because of the zoom into the geese before the bandits showed up. I noticed that zoom. Like, why are we being told to pay attention to these geese? And then kind of nothing happened. I'm on the exact same page as Julia. Yeah. And that's not something I noticed until I started doing this movies by minute thing. Like, there's definitely some intentionality going on there. And I think Terry Gilliam killed those geese. I think so, too. This film's got a dark heart, so I have, like, no problem believing that as well. Except for the chicken. I think we'll find out later that the chicken lived, <laughs> at least for a little while longer. Yeah. But, like, when they uh, they land in this farmhouse, it's still, I mean, that kind of lends credence to our earlier theories and jokes about how maybe all of their clothes were brand new this morning. Like, if this is if this is how they land, if this is how they come out of time holes, then, like... Yeah, every single time. <laughs> you're yeah. Gonna have, you're going to have shreds of your uniform in, uh, in no time at all, so... Yeah. And I don't know if you've ever watched this frame by frame. I don't know how they did this landing without getting hurt. Even if they were just hopping up in the air and then they edited it cleverly and pretended to hit hard. Well, Og in the water trap, he's like, he like thrashes around and there's like the suggestion of him falling into it. But like the editing, the editing's really good in this part. Okay, for instance, if you go to second 36, everybody following along at home... (laughs) Who is it? Um, Strenner. Yeah. He like lands on his knees and then falls forward. He lands in a way that would break your leg. I mean, he really does like a bounce. This is some amazing... I'm just trying to look here. Because he really does seem to come from above the screen. And yeah, it could have been some clever editing. But these are some hard hits that are being depicted here. These guys are really... Uh, they're not falling from too much higher than the top edge of the of the frame. Well, they might have even fallen from the middle of the frame if they had some really tight editing. But there's still a velocity yeah. there. 
Yeah, I think it's some clever camera work, clever angles, and clever editing. Which is, that's like, that's Terry Gilliam all over, right? That's the way. Yeah, with when you go in super tight like that, they're only falling like just a foot or something like that. Yeah, and actually, uh, as Julie and I were talking about earlier, we've got the chicken right in front. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, running away off to the oh, left. Oh, the chicken goes off left, and then it goes off, and then it goes off left. It goes off left, and then it goes off right. We've got like that one of those like eighties, one of those eighties things where you, you have to like repeat the slap five times to like that that Spike Lee kind of motif of like repeating the action. So we've got the chicken going bail, bail, bail. <laughs> <laughs> it is time to fly the coop. That's right. <laughs> the editing in this minute is. Oh, where did that smoke come from? The, that must be chalk. It's chalk, or I mean, it's a dusty hay barn, right? Like that's a that's a that's a dusty environment right there. Not not good for people with allergies. But they also they brought this stuff with them. <laughs> I think there's a good portion of that doing too. Yeah, if you pat any of these guys on the back, there's going to be a cloud of uh, of dust coming up for sure. There's... And this uh, this sorry, go ahead. There's no talk of contamination. Of different mm. times and places. Like uh, yeah. some of the papers. Do some of the papers come through the hole into Napoleon times with them? I think I so. I know they go into the void. Plenty of them go into the void. Well, how does whatever's on those papers change the timeline of the Napoleon times? And that happens a lot well, throughout this movie. Yeah. Let's talk about that for a second, because I've got a question that's very parallel to what she's saying. The time door opens and the time door closes. Is the wormhole only open when the time door is open? Like, is there a possibility that the time door could close in front of them as they're falling through the wormhole, and they would be destroyed? Well, that's a terrifying thought. That is a terrifying thought. If they didn't time it right. Right. They would be stuck in that void area. Would they be stuck in the void, or would they be destroyed? Like cut in half? I think they... Like by the tidal forces of the wormhole collapsing. I do, Well, I, I think they'd be trapped in there forever, which would essentially be the same as being destroyed. But, uh, but I like... Uh, Rick brings up a different point, which I've always liked in uh, like people who have the mutant powers of uh, portals, creating portals. Yeah. You know, if you, uh, if you turn the portal off when someone's halfway through... Then, uh, then see you later, person that was jumping through the portal. Yeah, like it's that a, was a... that was an application of portal powers in one of those X Men movies. I want to say Days of Future Past, where they have one yeah. character who opens portals and then closes those portals, cutting off limbs from the robots. Yeah, a very effective guillotine yeah. technique. Nice, very appropriate for this time period in France. <laughs> oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah, bringing it back. <laughs> They jump into the barn, and Randall is immediately at the window, looking up at where the time door used to be to see if the supreme being is coming through. Mm -hmm. What this suggests to me is that the supreme being is physical and not just a projection, and they're afraid of something happening here. Now, it could mean that they don't know that he's just a projection, and this is referencing something from Wednesday's show, so you at home, if you're just listening now... You should go back and listen to Wednesday's show. Julia had a very good theory about the Supreme Being. Randall, at least, is telling me as a character that he thinks the Supreme Being is a physical manifestation and can just come through that door and get him. I was thinking like he might be able to see through the door. Like he wants to know, are we being, are we being followed or are we in danger of being detected at all? Not so much that a force is going to come through and hurt them, but that their position will be pinpointed and then they continue they to, to be run. pursued at least. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So does the Supreme being know all of the roots of all of the time doors? I would assume so. I, but... Wow. I have questions about the supremacy of this being. If he's the <laughs> Supreme being. Mm -hmm. If you need to call yourself Supreme. Yeah. Like, with the title of Supreme, I think of omniscience, for one thing, and mm -hmm. omnipresence for another. Why does the Supreme uh, Leader need a map, for one? Why does he need to track them down? Why can't he just be where they are if he's the Supreme Being? Yeah. Um, although, I think that is slightly addressed 
oh, I can't remember if it's earlier than now or later than now. Uh, Kevin is being... Well, it's a time travel it's, movie, it's so... It's all the time. It's relative. It's, yeah, it's at all times. It is all now. <laughs> Kevin is clarifying about the Supreme Leader, and he says, oh, you mean God? And Randall says something funny like, oh, we don't know him that well. But yeah. it, it, it's kind of like, no, this isn't God. <laughs> this is just the Supreme Leader. So maybe I am putting attributes on the supreme leader that that i think that god has but in this world they may be two different entities yeah since we're poking holes in the supreme being right now i'm really bothered by the lack of pepperoni sausage bell peppers onions and olives that we don't see on the supreme being also the supreme being looks nothing like mila jovovich from the fifth element so two major complaints <laughs> yeah, two very valid, very valid complaints. Rick, first of all, I just want to say those cheap ones did. <laughs> I mean, do we? They I think are supreme. You need to ask yourself: Do you want to see Ralph Richardson in that white tape outfit? From <laughs> the the answer is always yes. <laughs> hell, hell yes is my vote. Hell yes is my vote for sure. <laughs> We have a saying yeah. in our house, if you have to ask, the answer is yes. <laughs> <laughs> I like that. I like that. <laughs> so I think Julie is right. He should be omniscient. And I think that the statement the movie is making really is that he is not. Well, or, or, I mean, it's also kind of saying that he is and he's allowing them to go on this adventure. The only variable is Kevin. He's like, he wants to see what a human would do, what moral choice they would make under these conditions. And that's the oh whole point God. of this, of this, of this journey. He's, he, he left the map on the table in front of these people who are clearly going to steal it saying like three, two, one. Okay. They've stolen it. All right. And now they're over here. And now I put them in Kevin's room and now I scare them out. Now let's see what Kevin does. And okay, they're in a farmhouse in France and let's see where they go from here. Like, they are not in the clear. They are not even, they haven't remotely escaped the Supreme Being. Like, Randall's mistaken, yeah. He's just pulling out his pocket watch and going, it's time to go pretend to be a burning forest. Yeah, yeah. this is all part of his, 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 his grand plan, which is, you know, when Kevin has the wonderful question for him at the end of the film, saying, like, you let all those people die? And he's like, oh, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, a few here, a few there, whatever. You know, like, like the, the massive indifference of this supreme being is almost more horrifying say, than anything else. Yeah, uh, I think uh, that was kind of horrifying. I think it was meant to be horrifying. Yeah. I mean, an alive yeah. body and a dead body have the same amount of atoms and right? molecules. Like, there's no real difference between them, right? Yeah. Ah, well, that is debatable. <laughs> and we are dealing with a person who is living in a place where the church is the state. Mm. You mean back in Napoleonic times here? No, in England. No, back in England, where they have the uh, state church. And I don't know how that affects people's beliefs, but I've got to imagine that if it is a state-sanctioned religion, that it's a lot different than, or, excuse me, that people view it a lot differently, and maybe with more skepticism, than people here in America where it isn't associated with the state. Yeah, there's a separation of church and state in the states that they're... That, that, that... What I'm saying is that it seems like the UK is more sarcastic about their religion. I think the UK is more sarcastic about anything, um, <laughs> especially especially power structures. They use their wit yeah. to speak to power, to ridicule power, and it's it's a kind of a way to, you know, tell someone to go to hell in such a way that they enjoy being told... You know, it's a, it's, it's, uh, I think there's a lot to like Oscar Wilde would like, but like the jester was the only person that was allowed to make fun of the king without being executed, but the jokes better be funny, mm. you know, but the king could say, you're right. I am like that. But if a regular surf did it, then it'd be off with his head. So I think there's something about that in the, in the UK tradition, but I do, I do take your point about there is a literal church of England and I don't think that it's created a, a higher society of scoffing at religion in the UK. I think it's created a deeply, a more deeply entrenched tradition of religion in the UK. When you talk about religious strife in the UK, like you're not messing around. 
like the, the, the history of conflicts and the, you know, the Protestants versus the Catholics and all this kind of stuff that happened over there. It's very bloody and longstanding. So like to this day. So yeah, they speak to power in that sarcastic way. And that's definitely what Terry Gilliam's doing with this entire film. But also there's kind of a meta commentary to be had here by someone smarter than me, probably that is equating the Supreme being and what he does with the game show, your money or your life. Yeah, Professor oh, Slughorn. I thought, it was, the, I thought <laughs> it was. I thought it was the opposite. Professor Slughorn turns into the 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 evil. Like the the kitchen, the kitchen and the ads are evil. Honestly, it took me a while to realize that the supreme evil is. I, wait, no, he's not the supreme evil. What is he called? The personification what, of the, evil. Uh... Let me let me pull it up. Yeah, I think he's just called evil. Yeah, the the evil genius, whatever he's called. It took me a while to realize that he was played by the bad guy Valet from Titanic. Yeah, and he's also played by the bad guy from Tron. Yeah. This guy. It took me a while. I think I'm slowly just, I'm just going to. This little known actor named David something something. I'm going to go through, um, I think, my entire movie by minutes career. Just follow David Warner from film to film. Just just following David Warner from film to film. I think that's what I'm going to accidentally end up doing. He's just secretly finding people that are passionate about David Warner films and then co-hosting yeah, with them. I got a lot to say about that guy. He's one of my favorite villain <laughs> actors. And and then also, Evil had transformed into the Professor Slughorn Jim actor, yeah. Jim Broadbent, at that point where they're in the Fortress of Ultimate Darkness. Mm-hmm. Is Evil in the guise of Jim Broadbent's character on the game show Your Money or Your Life? Literally. Is he on Earth corrupting people and cheapening human life as part of his mission? I think it's a mall Santa situation. That it's not him specifically. He's just an agent of, or you could tell the kid he's a helper of that evil genius character. Like, he's not the real evil genius. He's just a helper. So if you go and pull Mm -hmm. the beard off, it's going to be a different guy. But it's all in service of the same idea. Yeah, I think he's just saying that like rampant commercialism and consumerism is evil. And those talk shows where you're given a choice of your husband dies or you get 20 grand (laughs) is inherently evil. Well, in that instance, you get a life insurance policy before you go on the show. So you win either way. (laughs) And a kitchen to boot, a brand new kitchen. So really, it's a fair trade. Your money or your life. Mm. We have this debate frequently. So I don't think he's literally being possessed by the embodiment of evil i just think that he is a a face of you know a face of evil that makes sense to me okay so i'm sitting here looking at a still of the supreme being coming down the hallway and i am going to say that that is not at all what's his face's nose i think it's ralph richardson i do think it is i remember i saw this video of uh uh i think it was a woman's face and they'd taken an extreme light source and they brought it all around her face from the top to the side, to the bottom, to the left, to the top, to the right, to the, they did that like four or five times. Yes. And, yeah, uh, I've done that study. Yeah. And you're like, oh my gosh, that's, those are like, you know, 20 entirely different faces that they all share like a similarity, but that change in lighting, it just changes everything. So that's, that's what leads me to be not entirely sure. I do understand what you're saying that there's a difference in the nose. His head is not bent towards the camera because we can see the bottom of his nose. Oh, true, true. We are definitely looking up his nose. Ralph Richardson's nose is bulbous on the end, and this nose is like a perfect, I don't know how to describe it, like a horseshoe. Mm -hmm. I think this is purely an animation made up by Terry Gilliam, and I don't think it's based on him. I think he just wanted an imposing thing. It's up in the air for sure. Like comparing the two pictures here, he's got more of a W.C. Fields kind of face. And this is, yeah, this is a different nose. Um, His jowls are wrong according to the lighting. mm -hmm. Yeah. And his chin doesn't quite match. There's a dimple in his chin that's not present in the, in this floating head. It could very well not be the same guy, but I I think there's enough wiggle room there that it, it might be just, uh, just the lighting changes so much but it's really hard to say for sure absolutely i think i'm officially going with julia it being a projection and him putting into the projection something more imposing than the reality okay i can dig that 
And also, if this is God as we Americans understand him, then he is not locked into one physical form. Yeah, He can appear as he needs to. Yeah. So if he needs to appear as a head, uh, which is rather reminiscent of a burning bush, because mm-hmm. this, this is a burning head, basically, mm-hmm. then he appears as appears as he needs to. Yeah. Which really opens you up when when that style of God is a character, you can literally do anything. Mm-hmm. Well, and that's something through this discussion that I'm discovering. God probably just is messing with them. Yeah, I think this is a, a weird uh, test, a strange uh, process that he's that he's he's almost like testing the integrity of the universe and testing. It's, it's just sort of like every now and again he's got to give the morals a push, pick someone and give the morals a bit of a push and see what happens, just to see, see how what the, happens, see how the whole thing's unfolding. So it's all just QA testing. It's QA yes. testing, exactly. Yeah. Yes. Ah, it's just time to flood it all and start all over again. Right. He's a developer who's game testing the universe, right? That's and I sure. don't get the sense that this test is terribly important. No. It's, no. it's, it's perhaps just... more of a curiosity. Mm-hmm. Unless he is testing Kevin for a role as something bigger in the future that would come up in the sequel. Oh, that's a wild, that's a wild idea. That. Well, once we're talking about God, Kevin could be auditioning right now for the second coming. Oh my god, dude, like, you're taking Supreme this to wild being places. Is is looking for somebody who is yeah. has those uh, abilities and has the right temperament and has the right morals and worthiness to be Because why is he testing him at all? Is just because he's bored one day? No, I think he's just this is this is the scheduled time for a morals test. He's going this is a checklist. The idea of it being QA I think is is good. It's just whether or not he picked Kevin at random, or if he had his eye on Kevin for a while, or if this is indeed a test that's going to keep on going and he's got something in mind for him later. Right. If it was a good QA test, uh, it would have been a random kid. Yeah. Okay. One of my favorite things to do is to imagine scenes that are between scenes that we've seen. Like, why would this have happened this way? And then another of my favorite things is to imagine what the sequel would be. And this really isn't connected to that. I'm bringing this to a slightly different area. Kevin has the Polaroid of the map at the end of the film. Yeah. And can now go try apesing off through time and space Mm -hmm. on his own. And what would God think about that? He's now given this kid this power. Is God really omniscient and, and knows that this kid has a copy of the map and can now himself go back to be with Agamemnon or whatever his deal is going to be? And that means that Kevin could end up being like this Robert De Niro person in the movie Brazil, the plumber, who's able to just pop in and rescue people and then pop out seemingly with no real way of getting around, secretly using the power of this map to go through I time. Mean, just and like space. a little a fly in the ointment kind of thing. Yeah, is like Kevin yep. the is Kevin the founding member of the order that Robert De Niro's character in Brazil belongs to? <gasps> Oh, my God! Is this <laughs> technically a prequel to Brazil? Let's hope so. <gasps> Literal chills right now. <laughs> I've never seen Brazil, and now I'm sad. Oh, this is... Well, the thing... Time Bandits Brazil and the Adventures of Baron Munchausen are a life... Uh, they're called a... Uh, what's it called? A Lifeline Trilogy? Or it's, mm-hmm. it's called the... It's called the Trilogy of Life or something, where it's like Time Bandits is Childhood. Brazil is middle age and Munchausen is old age. I highly recommend all three movies. Highly, highly, highly recommend all three movies. It's something to do with life. Keep forgetting. I'm just going to take an edit break right now and make all kinds of bad typing noises <laughs> and figure this the fuck out right now. The trilogy of imagination. Oh, okay, there you go. One thing that uh, what happens in this farmhouse that always made me a little uncomfortable is Strutter is very uncomfortable uh, dragging Kevin into the darkness and covering his mouth. There's a there's a real there's a real moment there where they've got him captive uh, in the in the hay bale there and that's I think maybe one of the only times in the movie where I really felt like Kevin was in danger. I was like, okay, that's not cool. This is this is now we're, now it's scary. But then uh, Randall says all clear and and they let him go. But that's uh yeah. It was well, they're already starting to like him. <laughs> yeah, they, they, he's like he's got hey this kid's got gumption you know he helped us push the wall so he's on our side. I now. kind of went in an opposite direction myself 
I felt like they were protecting him for his own good. Or protecting themselves rather than putting him in danger by having a kidnap situation. I can totally dig that, for sure. For sure. It's for his own good. Otherwise, he's going to keep on talking and betray their 20. (laughs) Tell the Supreme Being where they are. Because now he's into it, too. Yeah. He's chosen to come with them. He made that choice back in the hallway. And then, uh, yeah, Randall starts giving orders, and Wally sits up with a basket on his head, and he takes it off, and he says, yep, and he's covered in hay. Everybody's very much covered in hay, and Og's in a trough outside, so it's it's pretty, it's pretty uh, yeah, pretty dusty, and everybody's covered in farm detritus. But there's, uh, if you well, if you want to go through the differences between the script and the comic and the novel, because there's some interesting differences, or if you have anything else. Okay. In terms of the in terms of the script, there's slight interesting differences because I think the fall sequence was supposed to be longer and have effects because it mentions it says their figures distort, stretching and twisting and then reforming as they pass through galaxies of black spheres and even blacker space. Which I'm like, what? So like they're living and dying and discorporating and recorporating as they fall through endless realities and different galaxies. Like I was like, that didn't happen. So I wonder. And that's funny. That's one of the things I was kind of looking forward to talking about before I read the script. Right. If this is a time door and it works like a wormhole, then this would be the Stargate, where you go in and all of you is between the two planets at the same time. Your foot would be on one planet and your head would be on the other planet. Sure, yeah. And that's what he's describing here. And that's just based on how scientists think it works. Okay. And he just didn't have the budget to do that. Nope. <laughs> he didn't have the budget to stargate this thing, so he just had him fall through the air. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Definitely. That's definitely what took place. And, and to me, that works better. But this is a great little glimpse into his mind and how that works. It's very interesting. Yeah, and I, I also like... What's interesting to me so far is that they don't mention the comic, the novel, and the script. None of them portray the rectangular time portal door in uh in the script they just appear in a puff of dust amongst the chickens and uh and it's just it's that image is really burned into my mind after having watched the movie of those rectangular time portals i was very interested that uh that's not in the script or the comic or the novel so i wonder how last minute effects wise this was added or if it was something that he just came up with and was like ah, this is cooler let's do it this way or, <laughs> or if this was like storyboarded or or uh or like how complicated was the effect? I don't know. <laughs> okay. We also, in the script, we get a little bit of um, Kevin asking. He's like, who was that? Where are we? What happened to my room? And uh, and stuff like that, which uh, we don't we don't have. Oh, and also in, uh, in the comic, uh, Kevin's bathrobe is a really bright yellow with a red plaid on it. And that's something that's not um, thought of the movie. Probably for the best, but understand why they would go with something so bright for the the comic was this comic made like after the movie okay it came out it came out after the film it's just okay it was at the time marvel was marvel did like hundreds of these comic book adaptations you know like uh blade runner and all that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff because the uh the plaid of kevin's uh robe feels more 50s than late 70s early 80s okay sure under the robe kevin's wearing his day clothes right He's not wearing pajamas. Yeah. No, he's got a full he's, full day clothes. He's got like a yeah. sweater and trousers. Because he was prepared. He had the, he's prepared. Yeah, he had the bag already slung over, like securely slung over his shoulder. He's fully dressed mm-hmm. with the robe. So he was fully intending on whatever adventure he was going to go on, that robe was going with him. Yeah, he was down. Oh, well, he was using that robe to hide his clothes from his parents if they came in to check on Oh, yeah. that's a good point. That's okay. Yeah. That makes a lot more sense. I have checked, and there is no appearance of a time hole in the comic. Hmm. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah, I'm really curious about that, because that's almost like a pivotal effect, and uh, to have that not show up anywhere else. I'm curious. If I had to, if I had a question for Terry Gilliam, that would be one of them. <laughs> God, how great would it be if we could you get you got to write those questions down. Cool. you got to keep them handy. Yeah, true. That's a good tip. Good tip. Yep. Hiding behind them in the tiny square of light, which was Kevin's bedroom, the ghostly figure stood watching them with glowing eyes as they fell, their figures Mm -hmm. distorting, stretching and twisting and reforming as they passed through galaxies of black spheres in an even blacker space. 
Kevin was as amazed as he was yep. frightened. He wondered where they were falling to and whether their descent would ever end. Dun, dun, dun. Hmm. And then it did, on top of some geese. On top of some geese. <laughs> yeah, there's no mention of time doors or anything in the novel either. Well, we talk a lot about geese up here in Canada. They're uh, <laughs> well acknowledged as uh, giant bird tanks that you do not go near because they will kill you. And they're vicious and nasty things that hiss and have serrated teeth on the inside of their beaks. Yeah. <laughs> and they're, they're not peaceful animals. I want to give them a wide berth. <laughs> I'm telling you, wanna, it would be a fair fight. Yeah, I want to fight one. It'd be a, it'd be a, a fair fight. Those things are—they like, uh, don't mess around. I'm like 250 pounds. I'm six foot. I could probably. <laughs> Have you ever been attacked by a goose? No, but I. There, uh, speaking of Canada, there's a lot of geese that fly through our area, and uh, okay. they like to land on the campus where I work, and so I will often come into very close proximity to them. And mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of people that are intimidated by them, but I just keep Not the you. course. If they're going to approach me, I, I, I eagerly await the day where I will have cause to defend myself against the goose. I'm not going to aggress against the goose, but I also refuse to not defend myself. I just want you to know, as you contemplate this fight, <laughs> as you're out punching raw meat and running through the streets of Philadelphia... Getting ready to take on this goose. <laughs> that I have witnessed a goose attack. And how they attack when they are trying to hurt you is that they tear off chunks of your flesh. Mm -hmm. Oh my gosh. Effectively. Effectively, I, Very effectively. I, I might add. Yeah. You won't have scars. You won't have scars. <laughs> yeah, maybe, Rick, you should watch some videos on YouTube of... <laughs> Geese attacks. How to fight a goose. Yeah. Effective. Uh, how to fight effective a goose. goose defense mm -hmm. strategies. <laughs> Since you are bound and determined, at least get to know what you're up against. All these goose defense pages are blank. What's, uh, what's going on? <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. We're always learning something here at the Time Bandits Minute. Mm -hmm. yeah thank you for having us everyone wants to talk about the ending and that is kind of sorely missing right now is that something you guys would like to address before it's you sort go? of become tradition on the on the third minute to talk about to talk guess, about the ending on the harshness of the ending or, or what your take on it was i was shocked by the ending it was so abrupt um there was a dark little piece inside of me that loved it. Awesome. <laughs> you are the first person that's on my side. Go on. Yeah. Talk yeah, more. There's, and talk yeah. over everyone else when they start talking. <laughs> <laughs> I, I really liked how surprising it was. I liked being reminded that in this world where time travel is real, that anything can happen. We knew that that bit of rock was going to be a problem that was properly telegraphed to us. Yeah. So it absolutely should have been a problem. Um, and the abruptness of that problem was lovely. It was perfect. I loved it. Nice. I was, I was so shocked, though. So I'm just going to guide you through the talking points that people, uh, that people like. Sean Connery showing up as the fireman. Meh. Duh, no, didn't do anything for me. Doesn't mean anything. Felt very Wizard of Oz. Sure. Oh, yep. yeah, sure, go um, ahead. It did It did make me wonder what was real and what wasn't real. Um, although there still is plenty of... I called it early on. I said to Rick, this movie is going to be, he wakes up from a dream, but he has some sort of physical proof that this really happened, which is exactly what mm -hmm. happened. He had the pictures. Um, yeah. So that tells me this really did happen. But then Sean Connery showing up tells me that it was all a dream. Cool. Hold on, I'm marking Julia down in the really did happen column. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I really like the idea, though, that, that this whole thing is a subconscious dream of grown-up Kevin dealing with trauma. Yeah. That kind of really... makes it null and void. If both of his realities are this dream, mm -hmm. then you don't have to justify the fantastical elements and the proof. Like, it's all good. It's all good. Well, 
I think that I am also in the camp that everything we saw in the movie actually happened, quote-unquote. That all of Kevin's experiences were actually physically happening to him. That he did go on this journey. Um, By this point in the movie, meaning the end, I was so far along this journey that I pretty much threw up my hands and said, Sure, why not? Why wouldn't it end like this? I've seen yeah. so many crazy things. This does not shock me one bit. Let's just go with it. <laughs> As I mentioned earlier in the week, I had already seen bandits traveling through time, so I had no other expectations. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Perfect. Final thoughts for the week, Duncan? Uh, not much. It's just this is the moment where everything happens. The wall ships... Uh, we are we're well on the road to the rest of the adventure here. We finished the introduction. We are deep into unknown territory, and I'm really looking forward to going on the the rest of this magical journey and all the different chapters that it, that it consists of. And it's been an absolute pleasure having you two here. It's been wonderful having you both. Yeah, thank you for having us along. Thank you. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Always like being introduced to new movies that I never would have watched on my own. For sure. The Time Bandits Minute is a fan project hosted by Curtis Blaze and Duncan Shields. The movie Time Bandits was written by Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin and is presented by Handmade Films. The novel Time Bandits was written by Charles Alverson and is based on a screenplay by Michael Palin and Terry Gilliam. It is published by Severn House Publishing. The comic book adaptation Time Bandits was written by the team at Marvel Comics and presented by Stan Lee. The screenplay, Time Bandits Movie Script, was written by Terry Gilliam and Michael Palin. It was published by Doubleday Dolphin Books. You can find more of us at timebanditsminute.com or text us at 712-830-7373. You can also find us at Facebook at Time Bandits Minute, the podcast. Thank you to the Star Wars Minute guys for graciously allowing us to steal the format. If you would like to listen to other Movies by Minutes podcasts, check out moviesbyminutes.com. Join us next week for Minute 13, when you'll hear Fidget say, Well, we don't know him that well. We only work for him.